0: Let's continue where we left off a few evenings ago. Dealing with respect, could call it reverence or cherishing, intimacy. If you recall, one of the things that was emphasized is um, the expression in infinite respect, pointing to the value of everything, or wherever we find ourselves. And some examples were explored in terms of people, nature, really could be anything, animals, situations, to bring this wholehearted attention that we're developing, bring it to bear in that situation. And we were attempting to um, offset, or let's say perhaps enrich, or elaborate upon a certain view that comes to exist about mindfulness or attention, as it's talked about a lot here, because it's such an unassuming word and the instructions are so plain and also unassuming, that sometimes there's a tendency to fall into uh, the sense that these simple-minded instructions are going to yield simple-minded things, but it's not true. So that as mindfulness, maybe it's a, an exciting word for you. For most people, it's pretty neutral. As it really starts to become enlivened, that's exactly what happens. We become enlivened, as we become more alive. To be aware, or to be more aware, is to be more alive. Now, we may not like that sometimes, because it also means to feel our insecurities and loneliness... Uh, more, more so, as you no doubt have during the retreat. And uh, some people uh, after, afterwards were asking questions as uh, granted the, in, the importance of it and the beauty, or at least the potential beauty of it for all of us, but some people felt a little bit far away from that and wondered, how do you help that happen? And it's not so much doing an impersonation of somebody who's tremendously excited about being alive. In the sense of any impersonation, like, you know, of uh, President Reagan. There are some people who do very good ones. But it's not President Reagan. You know, it's somebody, and the reason it's funny is that it's so close. But we know it's not. It's not President Reagan. And so, as usual, we start with where we are, which might be that a lot of the mindfulness is kind of humdrum. And not at all what was being suggested. Well, one way in which it comes uh, to match some of the words that we use is simply by doing it, or as life does it, the practice does it. Because as we become, as the awareness becomes more vivid, as we become more intimate with whatever we're doing, with a breath, with uh, feeling things that touch us, which, with the taste of things, with colors, sounds, hearing the real content of thoughts, let's say if we call that intimacy, as that starts to happen, that generates more interest in the process. So as the process uh, brings energy up Because the more we experience and discover, the more we become interested in this process. It's self-motivating. And that, I would say, is the main dynamic that gradually and sometimes not so gradually arouses this understanding of what attention is, what awareness is or can be. And there are other ways. There's one very important way in which this can be developed and has been used since the beginning of the Buddhist tradition, since the Buddha's time, If it's respect that we're concerned about, meaning real interest in everything that's happening, and if you remember some of the examples were things that we normally would not be interested in, as we're, we tend to be more interested in things that are, uh, have a payoff for us as people in one way or another. And a lot of life is just of no consequence from that point of view, and so we lose interest. And because of that, a lot of life gets lived out in a half-hearted way. And so, early on, uh, there was a form of contemplation called death awareness meditation in, in, uh, at the time of the Buddha, and it's continued since then, and it's done today. And there are different approaches to it. Uh, the approach then, which is not too practical right now, would be Uh, to spend time where dead people's charnel grounds are left and see the body in various degrees of decay and decomposition. And to reflect on that, the reflection being that this too will happen to me, just as I see these uh, bones or remnants of a human being in front of me. That will happen to me too. I won't be exempt from this. And one of the reasons for that, there are a number of benefits that come from these reflections. It's not simply an exercise in morbidity. One is to enhance the sense of the value of having a human life right now. or is this respect, having tremendous re- respect for our own life, which we may not have, or which may be very uneven. And for the life of others, it just comes out of that. It's an extension of it. And so, in reflecting on the, the fact that each one of us must die, sometimes what can happen is that reflection itself can generate a real appreciation for life. In other words, the point is to enhance life. We are alive right now. And although each one of us will die without exception, everyone in this room will at a certain point be dead. Definitely, that's true. And although there's an unwillingness for us to go along with that law, the law just doesn't care. It's the way it is. Now, the reflection, of course, can go in any number of ways. You can reflect on and say, that's true, and then just go crazy and become, you know, live today, what is it, live today, tomorrow may never come, and just go crazy. Just go to Acapulco and Spend all your money. And that's one solution to it. But what is uh, what, it, what is suggested when that contemplation is used is one is to get a sense of the uh, the true nature of the body. And because the true nature of the body is that it's finite, that it at some point die, it ends, it dies, is to enhance our value for what we have now while we are alive. And in particular as it might not surprise you, a spiritual practice to enhance our sense of the urgency, the importance of inner development. And some of the reflections that can be used now since it's not so accessible, let's say to see uh, dead bodies in various stages of decomposition are reflections. And we won't go into it in detail tonight, but just... Uh, from time to time you might reflect on things like the inevitability of death. Each one of us uh, will die. And if you reflect on that, and you can make that come more to life by thinking of perhaps some of the most powerful, uh, forceful, or f- successful, extraordinary people that you can think of who are dead. You know, great athletes, extraordinary actors and actresses, you know, virile, famous people, the Buddha, Jesus, they're all dead. (laughs) And if they couldn't talk their way out of it, (laughs) you can be sure that we're not going to be able to. So you can reflect on that. You can reflect on people in your life right now. People are contemporaries, people we're living with. And and understand, take each one and understand that this person will die. You can reflect on, uh, say, approximately 100, or if you want to play safe, 125 years. If you want to be 150 years, you know. (laughs) Absolutely everyone who's alive on this planet now will be dead. There won't be one person left who's been through all the terrorists and all this stuff. We'll all be gone. And there'll be a new group with new, probably new forms of madness, but it'll be different. None of us will be here. Totally new planet if it's here. We all cleaned out and a whole new cast of people doing the same things over and over. Different outfits. (laughs) Newer weapons or older ones. I don't know. And so you can reflect on that. I've uh, always learned a lot from watching the late shows. Because if you get a movie, let's say around 1940, 1939, 1942, something like that, sometimes you'll see these films, the entire cast is dead. (laughs) 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 And when they're there, I mean, you know, there's Clark Gable, he's just... You know, he's going to live forever. You just look at him and the female star, everyone is just so vibrant and full of desire. And, you know, the issues are so compelling, you know. uh, Love triangles and money and power and success. And the music plays on. The person who wrote the music is dead. The orchestra orchestra is dead. (laughs) And you have it right in your home. You can look at it. And they don't know that they're going to die. But at that time they were alive and somebody recorded it for us. But we can look in on it we can see they're all dead. And by extension, you know, we will be too. And so that kind of a reflection sometimes can really wake us up. And it's often done on retreats. Again, you have to be ready for it. Sometimes if you're in a period in your life where there's a lot of depression... And you're feeling extraordinarily vulnerable, and perhaps you're rather new to this practice, then it might not be such a good idea to do this reflection too much, because it can make things... <laughs> okay. But at other times, when you're feeling more hearty, had what is called a good sitting... Oh, it's actually quite useful if you're feeling very sleepy or low energy. Sometimes a few moments of a re- reflection like this can wake you up. <laughs> yeah. And of course, when anyone that we know dies, actually dies, in addition to learning how to mourn and how to relate to that person as they're dying, there's a teaching for us. The dying person is not only dying but teaching us that we too have to die. And it's possible to extract from that uh, important lessons, particularly what what is being pointed at tonight. The seventh Dalai Lama, around the 1700s, had this to say, and it's sort of, I'll just read a few fragments from a, a long poem, Meditations on the Ways of Impermanence. First, he is sends gratitude to his own teacher, his own Lama, but even that is quite interesting. He says, to the Lama Iha, my refuge and father, the recollection of whom dispels all sadness, I turn for spiritual guidance. And then he says, which is rather strange from a conventional point of view, we wouldn't think uh, think of doing this. Bless my mind with your transforming powers that the thought of death may never evade me, that I may practice the holy Dharma perfectly. So it's an understanding of using death, the fact of death, in a very positive way. It's not to get all caught up in it and morbid, although you may have to go through that stage, but again with awareness. To come to use that as a source of enlivening the practice. And here are a few other reflections of the the seventh Dalai Lama. On the golden mountains far in the distance, rings of mist hang like belts on the meadows. Now seemingly solid, so soon they dissolve, my mind turns to thoughts of my death. In spring, the season of warmth and growth, the stalks of the crops were turquoise green. Now autumn's end. The fields lie naked and parched. My mind turns to the thoughts of my death. On each branch of the trees in my garden hang clusters of fruit, swelling and ripe. In the end, not one piece will remain. My mind turns to thoughts of my death. In the belly of the vast plateau below me, the campfires of visiting traders glow like stars. But tomorrow they depart, leaving only refuse, my mind turns to thoughts of my death. From very birth, a child sees his parents slowly age, sees them each day come closer to the grave. How can you say to me, but I am still young? I warn you, there is no hope of hiding from death. Spirits were high with expectations this morning as the men discussed subduing enemies and protecting the land. Now, with nights coming, birds and dogs chew their corpses. Who believed that they themselves would die today? If you look closely and contemplate deeply the people and things that appear around you, you can see that everything is in constant flux. All becomes the teacher of impermanence. I remember this body when it was a child's, as it gradually took the form of a youth. Now its every limb is twisted and worn. It is my own body, yet it delights not even my own eyes. Finally, body lying flat on a last bed, voices whispering a few last words, mind watching a final memory glide past. When will that drama come for you? If you read the whole poem and the context within which those uh, kinds of things were taught, you'd understand that it was to generate the kind of energy that we're attempting to generate here and when when we all leave as well. Other ways in which that kind of sensibility can be activated, I don't know. uh, Another way of putting it is whatever arouses interest in life whatever enables us to become really interested, then that does it. And interest is an extremely important, I don't know, perhaps it's the most important thing we're working with here. Some of you know this term, dana. You've heard it here, it means generosity. And on one level, the meaning of of dana is giving giving money, giving support, giving comfort, giving consolation uh, in obvious ways, just uh, generosity. But there's a more subtle meaning of it, which is perhaps the highest meaning of it, which is giving interest to the practice. Because if you give interest to your practice, that's the greatest contribution that you can make, not only to yourself, but to everyone else. Can you see how, although you're working alone a lot, that it's not necessarily self-centered or narcissistic or some of the things that are sometimes leveled at meditation? Criticisms? That is, as if you can genuinely give interest to your life, the quality of your life changes. And as it does, that's what you bring to everyone else, wherever you go. Now, it's said that Donna gives us a good rebirth. Or as if you give lots of dana, then you get lots of good rebirths. I don't know if you believe in that or believe in rebirth in the first place or if that dana takes you there, you know, if you make a contribution. But the notion of dana is very important and understanding its subtle meaning is very, very helpful. Even if you don't get there, at least there's a tax write-off.
1: So, it's
0: the very least we get out of it. Um, What I'd like to do now in the remainder of uh, our time is to continue this theme but connect it with the short meditation that we did the last 15 minutes, if you recall. I'd like to go over that, uh, give you a sense of what, what that was about, put that in context in terms of your own practice and suggest how that can help you understand this um, infinite respect, but now brought really close just to the doing of our practice as we know it. You can even limit it to the cushion if you like, although it applies really to everything. First of all, let me clarify uh, this free attention that we were doing. In taking away the object of a breath and simply suggesting that you just sit attentively. Now, I don't know what that brought up for you, especially if it was the first time. Perhaps a, a clutching for the breath again because, after all, you've worked so hard for all these days to build this nice hitching post. And now, just as it's perhaps starting to be serviceable, you know, servicing you, and the, the mind perhaps is coming a little bit smoother, and walking is getting a little bit more rich, etc. Suddenly, someone says, Now just throw it away. Um, one view of practice, and I can't say this is everyone's view, but it is my particular bias, my particular opinion, is that ultimately this is what vipassana ripens into. It ripens into no technique whatsoever. And I. There's enough evidence that it's beyond Vipassana. That is, uh, some of the great Christian mystics and in other forms of meditation, Buddhist and other, it seems that what is being said is that at a certain point, as the practice gets stronger, uh, we really have to get into what you might call low-tech, or is just throw it all away. You have to travel very light. Just even the breath. Breath, mantras, mental notes, counting, you know, the really endless thousands of techniques, all of which are helpful. But at a certain point, the practice naturally grows into a place where to have these techniques is a burden. It's like carrying suitcases when you've already arrived, you don't need them. You know, you can put them down. And What was suggested, this this free attention, it's been called many things. It's called choiceless awareness or free attention. You can't really practice it. That's the beauty of it. What you can do is you can approximate it. And that's all we were doing. And if you uh, feel like doing it from time to time, and I'll suggest how you might do that, what we would be doing is practicing free attention or practicing being choiceless, and clearly that's a bit of a contradiction. So that you can practice concentration, you can practice, uh, let's say, attention, but, but this kind of thing is more of a happening. It's something that a person grows into out of the ripening of the practice. However, we are already moving in that direction. And the reason I thought it would be useful is, first of all, I feel it's helpful for people to have a taste of it, even though uh, most of us are relatively new to this practice, and you may feel, as probably you do, that this free attention is not appropriate for you just now. I still think it's some value in you knowing it because it can heighten some of the, the, the values of what we've been talking about for the whole week. We're developing certain ways of looking at life in the meditation practice, that have to do with respect and openness. We're developing that. And in this free attention, it's the fulfillment of it. In other words, it's the the purest statement of things that we're already doing right now. Let me see if I can give you an example or give you a feeling for it. In free attention, not only do you drop the breath, but you drop anything. So there is no agenda. There is nothing whatsoever that is held up over and above anything else as being important to attend to. The only goal is the attentiveness itself of what is happening in the vivid present, in the lived present right now. That takes a certain faith and a certain confidence to be able to even begin to do that because you don't know what's going to turn up and when you drop the agenda, when there's no agenda, and you also don't have a guiding technique like, this, like the breath, which gives the ego something to grind its teeth on, so to speak, something to work with, there's control. Or as the person, there's something that's deciding to be with the breath, and then your mind's taken away, and then you acknowledge it, and then you bring it back. There's a lot of doing still. Well, who's doing the doing? It's the troublemaker that's doing the doing or is the cause of all the suffering is that doer and yet can we just say okay just can you see that let it go and just be so we have to approximate ourselves approximate uh, ourselves into that it's kind of simulate something which eventually becomes a reality from this point of view all the techniques are forms of conditioning and you all know that some of you have had other practices in fact have been quite articulate in pointing out how you, know, you did this Zen practice or that Hindu practice and you can't stop it. Here you want to come here and you'd like to just follow the breath but there's some mantra raging on. These are different things that were reported in different interviews. Or other kinds of attitudes that the first teacher that you had gave to you. It's like your parents. It's a form of conditioning. There's no question about it. But it's a form of conditioning designed to lead beyond all conditioning. Okay, so that at the beginning, if even so simple a technique as working with the breath, which is very close to just being ordinary, does have a lot of doing in it, and it has choices, and there's a a choice maker, the I, the me. Okay, and there's a goal. We see we, uh, if the mind, you know, all the instructions are giving you little goals and if you learn them, then you're doing well at it, and you do it, and you feel something happening. It's quite effective. I'm not denigrating the techniques. Quite the contrary. They're extraordinarily important. It's just I'm trying to put it in a larger context which may help you understand something deeper than the techniques that are going on even right now as we work with the techniques. Okay. For most of us, we do have an agenda all the time or very often. Moreover, the mind is cursed with this incessant need to calculate all the time. Scheme, calculate, engineer, design, plan. It's constantly figuring out how to do this in order to get that. Instrumental. It's extremely practical. To the point of madness. There's always something in it for the mind. Or it's, all right, I'll observe something, but why? And you know, a lot of the questions are about that. Now, this is something perhaps you've already learned, but if not, I hope you do. Eventually you'll see that the most powerful form of awareness is a form of awareness that has no goal other than the seeing. There's no ulterior motive. There is no accompanying calculation or scheme except the pure perception of what is happening in the moment. But we don't have that kind of a mind. Our mind is an admixture of that kind of attention plus all kinds of goals. Like, if I look at this pain long enough, it will go away, right? (laughs) The books say so. You kind of promise that. We can't pin you down. (laughs) Not only that, I do see that. Sometimes it happens. I look at something, it's gone, and I feel good again. Okay, now I'm going to look at the next thing so that it will go away and I'll feel good. So we poison it. So there isn't that innocence or naive perception. Naive in the sense of just totally attending to what's happening. And it's no wonder that our minds are like that because we've been brought up to look at things uh, very much in terms of what we can get out of them. When we observe anything, it's very often it has some money involved or something that we gain. Perhaps the aesthetic looking is the closest to just looking, just the joy of, of looking and learning. The learning, of course, is intrinsic to this, because when there is this pure kind of observation, the learning comes from it. And that has been very damaged for all of us by the school system and by a lot of other things. In other words, we're, our looking has got a lot of comparison in it, a lot of means-ends. In other words, I'll do this in order to get that. I'll be, I'll be aware of this, of the pain, so that it goes away. And we can't help having that attitude. But the truth is, as the mind gets tired of doing that and just attends without anything else, that's much more powerful. Okay, so one of the, one of the lessons in uh, not having an agenda is unlearning gradually and gently, this need to be controlling all the time, because that's another way of putting it. We just find it very difficult to let go of the controls. So in Christian terms, some of what we're doing is learning the art of surrender. Letting go. Well, this is this free attention that I'm talking about. What we're letting go of is control itself. There's this insecurity that prompts us to constantly have our hand on the steering wheel and on the brake, foot on the brake and the gear shift and just always wanting to be able to control things. Well, who's controlling things? It's again back to that the troublemaker. There's the the ego that is protecting itself and getting hurt and enhancing itself and doing a lot of the suffering. When you throw it open and you say, no agenda, just whatever turns up, just let the field decide what gets experienced and what gets watched, that tends to decentralize the ego. It can be quite terrifying to the ego to suddenly find out that it's on unemployment. You know, that uh, we don't care what you want because there's no agenda. So you just have to be ready for anything or everything. And just, of course, that's why it can take many years of practice for this to be be natural for us. Because it requires a certain confidence, a certain trust in the process itself. The process is, if we can allow the mind and body to just do what it has to do, without us uh, so often imposing upon it, superimposing upon it concepts, notions, and trying to shape it and engineer it and make it turn out a certain way. What happens is, uh, for to not have an agenda is an invitation for the mind and the body to just start to empty itself of itself. It does anyway. Even with our agendas, things are coming up which we have no control over. I don't know if we fully accepted that. You know that. Can you see that it's all out of control? And it's, our mind is going to do what it wants to do. You can order it to have to be calm for the next sitting, but it won't be. And so what I'm trying to say is, the process is already going on with our practice as it is. But when when it becomes free attention. And you let go of everything, literally everything, and just surrender to the moment. Just totally allow everything to be exactly what it is, including you're not wanting it to be there. There's just tremendous beauty and power in the practice. And then we clutch up and try to regain control, and we see that. And the fist opens again, relaxes, the hand relaxes again. And the trust and faith is necessary because we don't know where we're going. Of course, we don't anyway, but at least we think we do. And with this, the practice is you know, to just let whatever is going to happen, happen. Even that little breath that you might not like, but now when you hear this, you appreciate it a little bit more. <laughs> Even that is, it's okay if it comes up on its own, fine, but if it doesn't, then just be with whatever is most vivid. And so it's a a, a very different the, the psychological feeling is very different. It's um, being totally receptive and allowing the mind, as it unfolds, to have its full impact on attention, to be fully experienced. And if you, when this ripens, it's extraordinarily relaxed. There is no effort. You can't be trying to do this. You can be trying to do this. That's what we're doing. And it can be subtler and subtler forms of trying until we might think we're not trying. Uh, and we have no choice but to do that. But the time comes where it just happens. And maybe some of you have had a few moments like that where it's effortless and everything is experienced exactly as it is. And then the mind jumps in and claims it. I'm doing this. And then we're back again to trying. Pushing this away and holding on to that. and. Uh, trying to control our destiny in this meditative sphere. Okay, what does this have to do with this infinite respect that we're talking about? I think only everything. In Chinese Zen, they use, I think, an image that's helped me a lot. I hope it's helpful for some of you. They say always, when talking about a practice that's like this, Always stay in the position of the host. Never fall into the position of the guest. What they're saying is that awareness is the host. And the guests are all these incredible variety of, some of them rather unsavory, visitors who come through the mind. All these different mind states, which we tempt every now and then, more than every now and then. We forget that we're the host, and we get identified with one of these visiting mind states. In other words, we become a guest. And so what they're saying is, put in another language, be the knowing. Be the knowing. Root yourself in the position of the host. Now, just for a moment, take the analogy into a party. This would be an incredible party if you were to live it the way that this Chinese teaching suggests it. That means... Uh, because what is also suggested is that everyone is welcome to this party. Crashers, you know, people who knock over the hors d'oeuvre table, (laughs) who monopolize the conversation, who, you know, start eating up all your food, whatever they do, become unruly. They're guests, and you're the host, and you've got to know the difference. And you introduce them to everyone else anyway, even though they're a drag. And if you can picture that, just that analogy of where uh, the, the, the art turns on awareness being so stable that everything is visiting it, that everything is a guest. And of course, as you know, from time to time, we fall in, we, we forget. And then it's as if we're, we're no longer in the host position, we're no longer uh, witnessing or observing or attending, but rather we're identified with what's going on. Okay, free attention... There's just knowing going on. There's no knower, because the know, a knower would be the past, it would be thoughts, it would be some self-image, and there's no meditator, most beautiful of all. Finally, the meditator gives us a break. In other words, what is blocking us from real meditation is the meditator. You know, We've been all trying to be such good meditators for almost nine days now, and that's the problem. It's still the ego, just decked out now as a meditator. You know, it finds out what gets rewarded. Oh, a loincloth and full lotus? Okay. That's what I'll do. And so we're trying to, to meditate. And it's an I I am trying to meditate. And the whole and the power of meditation is to let go of eye and mine, attachment to I and mine. Then there's just seeing and there's peace. I don't want to cut in on Corrado's turf. I hope it's not (laughs) my (laughs) turf. And so when the practice starts to uh, unfold in this direction, it's uh, really, you're relaxed. And you could talk about it as being serene reflection. There's just, the serenity means virtually no thought or very little thought or the thoughts that come are no bother because they're immediately seen and they just go into abeyance. And there's a highly alert quality. It's both the serenity and the reflection. The reflection is not thinking but it's this uh, non-verbal interest in what's happening. Sometimes it can be just peace reflecting on peace or the serenity looking into itself. Okay, now I know that uh, those kinds of states are not, we don't come by them easily. Uh, but I'm mentioning it uh, more to give you a flavor of something else. And that is if you understand this free attention, the whole art in the free attention is the complete allowing everything to be exactly what it is, not trying to add or subtract anything. And if and when that happens, allowing that, too, to be absorbed. in The the awareness absorbs that, too, so that it's very gentle but ruthless because there's nothing outside of it. There's just awareness, and no matter what tries to be an exception to it or tries to sabotage it, including I hate meditation, awareness just fine. Awareness sees the mind hating meditation, and then it's meditating again. Okay, now... To do that means that we have to have a rather radical different, difference in our relationship to the things that occur in our consciousness. Now, we talked yesterday, if you remember the first example of respect, of infinite respect. Do you remember the kitchen example of cooking with quality, with the, the attention being uh of high quality, whether you had elaborate, wonderful ingredients, or just some little old withered greens. And if the guests were just the scraggly old monks, rather than the emperors, the same quality of attention. It means an evenness towards whatever, wherever we find ourselves, rather than the way it is for us now, where we are alert, but sharply determined by preference. We're very alert if it's dangerous or if there's some money to be made, etc. And there's huge areas where we just don't care. We're just not awake. And what we're attempting to do in the practice is for that to spread. As you know, we've been trying to do that the whole week. Okay, the respect here comes in the following way. Each one of us finds ourselves being a certain kind of person. You know, it started a long time ago we were given a certain body and a certain kind of mind, a certain predisposition in life. And very early on, we looked out there and there were other people looking at us called adults and they started to tell us what we were. They started to tell us about how intelligent we were or how kind we were or how weak and, or strong we were or how sweet we were or how not sweet we were. And we started to get told, be told about um, who we are and we started to build up a picture of ourselves as being such-and-such and, such and this-and-that based on what people start to tell us about ourselves. And then we start to do things and things happen to us and sometimes they're wonderful and sometimes we get hurt. And those, it all leaves an imprint on this photographic plate and it's all stored inside. So we find ourselves having a certain kind of body. And perhaps you want a tall one, but you've got a short one. You want a skinny one. Well, you have a heavy one. Or maybe you want a short one. You have a tall one. Women who were taller than the boys, you know, in grammar school, maybe at that point may have wanted to be short. And people who have old bodies want young bodies. People with sickly bodies want healthy, healthy bodies. People who have certain kinds of jaws and noses want different kinds of jaws and noses and different shapes of legs and. Uh, different sizes to breasts, and you know, we all so we have this body, and it can be quite painful. And a lot of it we, we've gone through, let's say early on, and maybe some even now. In my own case, I remember uh, I must have been around 12 or 13, and, and I had very large feet for the size that I was, and I was about 4'8, <laughs> something like that and my mother took me to the shoe store and we walked in and the the, uh, clerk looked at my feet and he said he's got a real healthy foot on him, God bless him. (laughs) (laughs) And he said uh, not only healthy foot and God bless him but he said uh, he's got the foot of a six footer (laughs) and I was about four foot eight, four foot nine I mean, I felt like dying. I was just beet red. And I spent quite a bit of time. I don't mean, you know, all day long, but it was an issue. As the therapist put it, it was definitely an issue. Uh, Let's see, if I can grow fast enough, if I can get to be six foot two, then I'll grow into this size feet. Or maybe there's some operation, I can shorten the feet. Because it doesn't look like I'm going to grow a whole lot more. But my mind was very concerned with maybe these sneakers aren't as conspicuous. And even to this day, I mean, I uh, bought a pair of Birkenstocks just a few months ago. And the uh, clerk said, um, I don't know, I think it's between a 12, uh, let's see, a 12 and a 13 that you need. I said, 12, you know, (laughs) let's try 12. And so I, I put it on. He said, it's all right, but I think you need a 13. No, no, I think a 12 will do. You know, I never wear socks and it didn't have any anxiety in it but I could see there was still some residue you know from if it can be smaller let's make it smaller you know and we have the same with our minds you know we have all kinds of thoughts and feelings inside of us that have, have been accumulated through our life and we don't like a lot of them we don't like a lot of the ways in which we feel and the kinds of thoughts that we have the likes and dislikes that we find ourselves with. In in a way, none of us ask to be who we are. Suddenly, we're inserted in time and space and we find ourselves being such and such a kind of person who likes this kind of movie but not that and prefers peaches but doesn't like apples and and each one of us is different. Okay, and then meditation, what is that? And if we start from this just uh, allowing this capacity to just totally let everything come out, what do you think is going to come out? I mean, what's been put in is going to, what's going to come out. My big feet and your jaw, and whatever it is. And all these self-images that we don't like, they're going to come out. Because the whole practice is an invitation. Okay, we know you've been down there all this while, it's time to come out. And when they turn up, we don't often like them and we have all kinds of, you know, a lot of the questions in interviews are, how can I get rid of this one? We don't, we're not quite, after a while you learn that you shouldn't say it that way. <laughs> because you know what Karata and I will say and every teacher here says the same thing. and So you don't phrase it that way. But down deep it's really, there must be some way of easing it out a little bit, making it a little bit more impermanent than it is. And um, that means that we, um, we're not comfortable with it. That is, we we are afraid of certain things. We're afraid of fear and we're afraid of loneliness and we're afraid of certain thoughts we have and reflections and projections into the future and certain painful memories that turn up. And the challenge of this infinite respect, you know, we've been moving closer and closer. We started basically outside of ourselves if we can respect, you know, certain kinds of food. And now we're getting more intimate. And the question is, can we respect ourselves exactly as we are? Uh, we've turned out to be this way. You know, I can't help it. This is the way I am. And you're the way you are. And the pasana meditation is beginning with what we have. We're beginning exactly where we are. Where else are we going to begin? Anything other than that would be an impersonation. Attempting to present ourselves, to others and perhaps mostly to ourselves as being such and such when we're really not such and such. And those of you who are new, it can be quite a bumpy ride at the beginning because especially when you do retreats, this material comes up and it comes up, you know, sitting after sitting and walking after walking and we want a break. And part of why it's so bumpy is because we still have a lot of preferences. We like this and we don't like that. And if you stay on the path, one of the things that will happen is, more and more, whatever turns up is all right. I think it comes mainly out of uh, exhaustion. (laughs) You just get tired of wishing things to be other than the way they are. Because they're gonna be what they have to be. And it's your choice. You know, do we allow this to be what it has to be or do we play a game of wishful thinking? Let's pretend. That was a nice children's program. I don't know if you remember it. It's a little generational divider. (laughs) You remembered it, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so the art is learned, uh, perhaps through that bumpy ride of observing all the things that come up, observing how much we have a hard time observing them letting them just be, letting them arise and pass away. Some of it is suffering, which is basic to the Buddha's teaching. In other words, the acknowledgement of suffering. And maybe this will help. Central to the Buddha's teaching are what are called the Four Noble Truths. Some of you already know about that. It's a core teaching in the Buddha Dharma. And the first Noble Truth is the Noble Truth of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And one of the reasons that it's noble is that there's something ennobling in facing your suffering as it is and going through it. Can you see that? I think we all know what that is like. Maybe we don't fully acknowledge or appreciate how beautiful it is. And I don't think anyone can give you the kind of dignity that that can give you. No therapist, lovers, husbands, wives, parents, Jesus, the Buddha. I don't think anyone can give you that, because as you face your own unsatisfactoriness, the, the many forms of unsatisfactoriness that surface and, and come to us in our meditation or outside of our meditation, the meditation is, a, de- is a, de- a determination to turn towards it, instead of to hating it, avoiding it, explaining it away, the elaborate network of escapes from it. It's the simple. Decision with all the help of these techniques and the support of IMS and uh, these forms to learn how to turn towards it. So the first noble truth is recognition of unsatisfactoriness wherever we find it in our life. And some people have taken that to think that that means Buddhism is very pessimistic. It really isn't. It's the starting point. or as we're starting, there is a great deal of unsatisfactoriness in life. Probably everyone would agree with that. There's a lot of suffering. And we're probably among the blessed on this planet, considering what's going on on the planet as a whole. And what is suggested in the Four Noble Truths is first the recognition of this unsatisfactoriness, seeing the cause of it, and using the path, the Eightfold Path, of which mindfulness is central and concentration using that path to examine and to go beyond the unsatisfactoriness. So it starts with definitely a commitment to honor, acknowledge, respect ourselves as we find ourselves. And it's through doing that that the transformation is possible. We don't jump over it or try to jump over it. We allow ourselves to become exactly who we already are. And that's our old friend awareness again. And that has a dynamic all its own, which perhaps you're seeing in in maybe small ways and maybe not so small, such small ways. Can we have a few moments of silence?